0: The information discussed during the show is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure any condition. If your pet is currently experiencing any medical issues, please seek immediate assistance from a licensed veterinarian.
1: This is Dr. Caroline O'Sullivan and Holistic Pet Care with Dr. O. I'm excited to have our show today on a very interesting topic that um, all of our listeners are going to be very privileged to hear. If you'd like to get involved in today's show, please give us a call with any questions at 347-215- six one three eight at any time during the show and you could ask myself or our special guest today any questions about the topic, okay? So once again, welcome to Holistic Pet Care with Dr. O. I'm calling from Holistic Veterinary Care and Acupuncture Center in Prescott Valley, Arizona. For today's show I am very, very excited to have Kim McElroy here. Um, Kim does a variety of things and she is with our, our animal friends and one of the things I think is so special about Kim and her husband and the other people that are involved with what she believes and what she does is that they show a true respect for the nature of their animals that they deal with, whether it's cattle, whether it's horses, or it's chickens, or who knows what else she's got going on. But <laughs> the idea of being holistic is to respect everything that goes into a creature, including their constitution, including what they were meant to do, meant to eat, meant to exercise, meant to have relationships, those types of things. And that sometimes in animals' relationships with humans, as I think we all know, that um, true constitution, that true, um, uh, let's say, I think constitution might be the best word. Um, Our purpose. Our, our drive, those types of things, the things that we are born with, the things that we have an internal yearning or burning to do or to act in a certain way every single day is um, sometimes overlooked. And I know for myself that for human animals, we have a tendency to do that every single day. You know, just ignore what we want to do, ignore what we think we're to do to do the things that we think that we have to do. So, Kim, good morning. Thank you very much for joining my show.
0: Good morning. I'm very happy to be here.
1: <laughs> um, so, Kim, can you give us a quick and dirty about overview about the things that you, the activities you're involved in with animals?
0: Well, for me, quick and down and dirty, dirty. Is, is difficult, <laughs> so I will do my best. <laughs> um, currently, My husband and I have a uh, 3,000-acre cattle ranch in uh, central Arizona, and we raise all-natural grass-fed beef. And I also am a professional horse trainer. I've been doing that for 30-some-plus years. Um, My my background, um, I've always been involved with horses, and my bachelor's degree is in equestrian studies and biology, so I've just been a consummate animal lover my whole entire life. My parents are still wondering where I got that from, but um, <laughs> it's definitely a gift. <laughs> um, so I've just been, <clears throat> excuse me, been involved with animals on a lot of levels.
1: Good. Stuff. Now, now, um, with regards to animals that so you have, um, not professionally, not with the cattle and not with the horses, um, I recently learned that you have chickens that you keep for eggs. And then, do you have other pri- personal? Are relationship creatures in
0: your family that aren't business-wise? I do. You bet. Um, the chickens, <laughs> we, we keep around for eggs, and I just think chickens are kind of neat critters. So um, we have a small flock, about, oh, 20, oh, I don't know, 25 or 30 of them in and a, and a rooster. Mm-hmm. And then we always have a pack of four-legged, so dogs. There are kids. kids. Right. Um, we refer to them. My husband and I, we don't have human children, so we refer to the dogs as our kids, and they, I think, refer to us as their
1: parents,
0: (laughs) and we've always got at least four or five or six. We've had as many as 18 in the past, Um, and they're mostly companion animals. We do use them a little bit on the ranch, but they're usually uh, in the way more than they're helping, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I've had lots of dogs my whole entire life. Dogs and horses I've had uh, the most exposure with.
1: Good stuff. Now, um, one of the things that I've, well, we, Kim and I have spoken about this before, but one of the things that's really important to me um, is, as an animal lover, as a veterinarian, as an an, an educator, is that um, making sure that we use every opportunity to inform people about mm-hmm. um, Natural to kind of the way that these guys, all everything you've spoken about, Kim, would exist if we didn't interfere, and that's kind of a tough way to say it. But um, that's pretty much what today's show is about. It's so important, and that you and your husband and your dogs and your chickens have have really respected that, and that's why I have the utmost respect for you guys. And that it was so important for me to ask you to be here today because I want to I want to kind of sh- I want to kind of share the love, I guess, um, but. I think that let's start with our with our cattle. Now, for me, especially when I go into teach classes or when we just talk to people in general, it sometimes seems as though people think that meat comes from the grocery store. You know, it's just like there's no sense of what goes into getting your steak on the table or getting your hamburger in the grill or those types of things, and right. the way that things are done. Um, traditionally, and it's not it's not traditionally, it's not right. currently, the way things are currently done in this country um, for meat supply is quite different than Broken Horn D Ranch. Is that correct? Is that fair to say?
0: Yes, yes. Okay. Um, um,
1: so, go ahead.
0: Well, the beef industry um, has kind of, uh, I hate to use the word evolve, but it has developed, um, <laughs> you know, over the, the years in the past. Uh, and don't quote me on on years, but, you know, back in the good old West days when there were cattle drives, the cattle just roamed uh, basically free range, and then they were gathered up and driven to the marketplaces in Kansas City or wherever where the railroads were, and then they were shipped back east for human consumption. And so over time, that became less and less efficient. You know, you drive cattle very far, you walk all the weight off of them, and so by the time they get to the dinner table, there's not much left. So um, the industry has changed so that the cattle are raised, usually in open-range conditions or, you know, think of pastures of different types. And then after the cattle are weaned, um, they go into a feedlot situation where they're um, fed up and grown out till they're ready to be slaughtered, and then they're shipped um, to the packing plant, and then from there out ultimately out to the grocery stores and to the consumer. Um, So in order to get those cattle to market weight quicker uh, over the years, they've discovered that the cattle will, um, you can bring them to market weight a little bit faster by uh, manipulating their consumption from just grass and natural forages to feeding them grains like corn and soybeans and those kind of things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in... The whole natural process of things. Cattle typically, not that they wouldn't eat that, but they're typically not going to be um, grazing in the middle of a cornfield, um, in in the quote unquote wild. And I'm not I'm not inferring the cattle are wild, but the cattle that we raise today in a domestic situation, you know, have their roots in in feral type animals. So they kind of not they're not really designed to eat all that kind of stuff.
1: So. Um... So that, that was so funny. So um, excellent explanation. I, I want to ask you to clarify just a couple words for our listening audience here. Um, fed up, I think you, you know, from my understanding, I, you explained that, but fed up, grown out, and market weight. Can you just kind of go over those and the, the feedlot situation? I, I know what a feedlot situation is, but if you can a little um, de- uh, mm, describe it a little bit more and how sure. that varies quite a bit from being free range at all.
0: Okay. Well, in the feedlot, the cattle are in, um, in pens. We typically call them pens, and they're just dirt floor, um, wood fencing, and they have shade. They have uh, 24-7 access to food and water, and the pens are cleaned, and life is good. However, cattle don't normally exist in a crowded condition like that. I mean, if you ever see mm-hmm. them out in a pasture land or along the freeway or something, they're Kind of spread out. I mean, you might see a calf nursing or a couple of them rubbing heads or playing around, but they don't um, typically nestle all together <laughs> in close quarters. Right. So, so that's um, a stressor, if you will, in their environment. Um, and when I'm saying they're feeding them up, um, they're 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 contained in those pens with a pretty high-powered, high-calorie ration in front of them 24/7, and the, ho- the kettle doesn't have to work at all to To get that ration, it's just put in front of them. So they kind of just stand there and eat and lay around and eat and chew their cud and then stand up and eat some more, Um, and that puts the weight on them quickly. Um, They're also, in those conditions, um, a little more prone to becoming sick from any infectious organisms because of the crowding. So uh, antibiotics are introduced into the feed to keep the cattle healthier. And also they found a small dose of antibiotic fed to most any animal, will increase their their growth rate somewhat. Um, we don't really understand what is, what is why that sick happens. Hot? Exactly. Even if they're not sick, even if it's being fed as a preventative, it does help increase the growth rate so they can come to market quicker. So um, the, the cattle are being fed a kind of an, I hate to say unnatural, but an unnatural diet and then some unnatural additives to get them to market quicker. And now, mm-hmm. our free-range grass-fed cattle... Um, they're kept, you know, the mother cows live out on the open range. Um, they have their babies out there. We leave the babies on the mamas till they're, oh, four, five, six, seven months old, and that depends on the feed available. If we get good rains and we have lots of grass and forages growing, we can leave the babies with the moms longer. Um, if the feed is a little bit thin and the babies are pulling the, the body condition of the mothers down, then we have to wean them a little bit sooner and put them in Mm -hmm. their own pasture, but they live out in the open all the time. We don't supplement them with any unnatural products. We do supplement them with salt and additional mineral and that kind of stuff, and, of course, uh, fresh water. And um, then we bring them in to a pasture that's a little closer to where we can watch them and see when they reach market weight, and then we take them directly directly to the processor, so they're never in a crowded condition. They're never fed anything other than natural grasses and forages, and by forages I mean they eat, you know, chaparral and oak brush and bushes and shrubs <laughs> and grass and pretty much anything green. You know, they're they're great <laughs> weed eaters.
1: <laughs> Second only to goats, I think, right? <laughs> right.
0: Uh, but that, that
1: you you just. And, uh, you know i'm I'm patting myself on the back of having you as a guest because you're like so well spoken and just perfect. I just love it um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> she goes be'll be, I'll be free for you know uh, autograph at the end um right, the, right. Thing that <laughs> the thing that Kim um so graciously pointed out is that cows are their digestive tracts are very very very, very specialized for what cows eat and the life cow lives, and they are. Um, the 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 chaparral and the grasses and the forage that they get into their systems are may seem kind of tough living, but the bugs, the bacteria the, that live in their wonderful digestive tract um, are made specifically to break down these products that they eat and to make use uh-huh. of them to make them strong and muscular and get their fat on when the wind uh, when the wind and the rain and the snow comes and keep them healthy. And when that is kind of, it's a, it's a more uh, alkaline situation. You know, the acidity of their gut is very, very different than you and me or our dog friends or those types of things. And then when we go and we put grains in them to fat, you know, fatten them up, feed them up, grow them up um, to make them uh, do uh, what we want them to do a little bit faster, that really does change their gastrointestinal tract. It, it makes them more acidic. On. So there's a lot of um, resultant effects. There's a lot of consequences and those types of things that um, your cattle are so blessed that they get to actually live the life of a cow. They're born with their mom. Right. They live the life of a cow. And, from, and as crass as it seems from cradle to the grave, they are cows. And they're, they're, they're out there doing their thing as a cow with no interruptions except for being checked on and getting more water and those types of things. And I think do you guys use salt licks and mineral licks just to out in the areas where they are so they can or do you mm-hmm. put it in there? Yeah, just in there, um, just a lick so they now can we, use it when they want to?
0: Yeah, we use salt blocks. They're big fifty pound blocks that we put near the water sources and we use uh-huh. plain salt and high iodized salt and mineral salt and, and a cattle will a cow will self regulate what they need in that right. department. And um we right. do supplement with some mineral um which they tend to not use very much because they eat such a variety of green plants, but parts of Arizona are selenium deficient and iodine deficient, mm-hmm. so to make sure that they have what they need for proper metabolism. And, again, they self-regulate on that, luckily.
1: <laughs> so I don't know how <laughs> to figure it out.
0: But, um, but we don't supplement them with any kind of, uh, you know, medications or growth pro- stimulants or, um, you know, other products that would make them grow faster. I think when you start to try to manipulate the animal too much, you're going to affect, um, you know, when they're not living like a cow should live or a dog should live, then you start to add, you know, we call it stress, but stress is anything that's um, challenging their their existence, if you will, uh, whether it be yeah. emotionally or physically, and causes them to, to work harder, if you will, to overcome that stress. So I think when you put them in crowded conditions and feed them different foods, uh, for instance, with the cow, when you put them on grain, uh, be it corn or soybeans or whatever, um, it Uh takes their rumen almost a month to adapt to that change of feed and for the bacteria in the rumen to relearn what they're digesting. And Mm -hmm. if you're feeding both forage and grain, now you've got two competing organisms you know, probiotics, microorganisms in the gut and they actually are, are utilizing the feed less efficiently.
1: Yeah, exactly. exactly. Than if they those, were just yeah.
0: fed. You know. Right.
1: That's, and then um with your guys, um uh, not to not to eliminate the fact that your your cattle may get sick or may have an issue and those types of things, you guys are out there on occasion kinda of checking them out, checking the herd, so that's making sure that everybody's looking pretty good and putting on weight like you said and if your guys right. get sick you or you look odd or maybe being poor doers or not putting on weight, do you guys pull them out and check on them and see what's going on and then send them back absolutely. to the herd? Or just let it? Okay.
0: No, we um, absolutely intervene. Um, you know, backing up just a little bit, due to the way these cattle are raised and managed, we have a lot less illness than the industry standard. Um, right. You know, better conception rate, better live calf births, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it does happen. One of them just gets ill, or um, what's fairly common is we call it hardware disease, and cows are <laughs> pretty indiscriminate eaters. They kind of just yep. eat anything in front of them and then regurgitate it later to chew it better in their cud. So uh-huh. they'll eat a piece of metal, a nail, some foreign thing, and eventually that will um, perforate the gut, and you'll have peritonitis, which will kill them if you don't get it quick enough, um, or they'll eat, we had one recently, she ate a big wad of hay twine. Now where she got it, oh, I don't no. know, could have been, you know, somebody dropped it out in the pasture. Uh, I mean, 1,000 acres is a big pasture. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, it right. plugged her up and 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 she ultimately didn't survive. Um, so we do have those kind of losses, but typically if we see one that doesn't look right and we're riding through them every day horseback, just checking on uh-huh. everybody. Um right. We'll separate them off, bring them home to the pens, and we do medicate them if they're. I mean, if we get one that's got pneumonia, boy, we're hitting them with everything but the kitchen sink. And then yeah, we cause... put a special ear tag in them so they don't get sold as all natural grass fed animals. They just get sold as beef. <laughs> and, exactly. Exactly. You know, not that not that you can't uh, treat one with antibiotics or anti inflammatories or whatever. Um, and when you do, <coughs> excuse me, there are withdrawal times on those drugs. So right, once you've given right, it exactly. to the animal, you know, 21 or 28 days have to go by before you would slaughter it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, with the with the holistic approach to animal care or human care, whatever. However, you're thinking that using antibiotics, using anti-inflammatories, using every tool in our toolbox, making sure that we ha- help these guys as much as we can to have a good healthy pain-free disease you know disease late in life um is is an, is a nice tool to have it's just when it's used um in the hands of somebody that uses that per creature or per incident versus using it universally it's quite a different yeah. mindset you know um, right. so um yeah you got you got to really appreciate that but when you pull these guys out and they have something going on our ability to either take care of them on site in your own hands or call a veterinarian, a large animal veterinarian, or have your antibiotics, your anti inflammatories, and know how to use them and that chart those things so that it, this you know, this cow or whatever creature it happens to be can hopefully go back into the herd or hopefully go back to where it needs to go just to have a minimi- minimally stressed rest of its life. But we right. also don't want them out there, you know, if, if you can help them, you know, I don't I see a darn thing wrong with doing everything in your toolbox. Like you said, get them with everything to the kitchen sink and keep their stress as low as possible for their quality of life and then to serve whatever purposes that they need to serve. So, and it's funny right. we mentioned hardware disease, Kim. It's so, it's so funny because when I was in vet school <laughs> and some of the other things that I did with um, dairy cattle and such, um, you you know this, that the traditional way to deal with hardware disease is that you, you have them swallow a magnet so that right. every time the magnet lives in the room and, and just you know in the sauce, in, in the sludge of the wonderful room and all those bugs, so when our cow goes out and eats a little piece of wire, eats a little nail, eats whatever the heck it is that cows eat amongst everything else, whether they're in a feedlot or out on pasture, that the magnet grabs onto this piece of metal and keeps it still so it doesn't work its way with that. You know, the rumen is that big basket that's just always churning and the muscles are always moving it. So it's a miracle mm-hmm. that these teeth of the metal don't always make it through that rumen or always make it out or always puncture something because of the sharp teeth right. in a moving bag. And um, the case that I had when I was in school is that we had um, heartbreak disease that had gone through the cow's rumen through the diaphragm, through the lungs, and was sitting in the pericardium, the sac that is around the heart. And um, wow. that was a tough one. <laughs> that was a tough one. <laughs> and, uh, this, this cow was, it was a, um, a yard ornament. It was a pet for our client Ed, there. And um, son of a gun, if we didn't go to surgery and um, get it out, and, uh, wow. it, which, which is way, way, way above and beyond, way over the top. Um, and uh, I'll be damned if she didn't. She didn't survive. But if you can tell, if it's possible for you to tell our listening audience the difference between approach, human interaction, attitude, danger levels, those types of things, with a dairy cow. I'm not sure about your experience with dairy cows, but I'm sure you know, versus um, a beef cow. Now, this this cow I'm telling you about that had the hardware disease so when we went to surgery. She was my um, my responsibility. And I got to be honest with you, the hell that cow got, Holy smoke! Did she get mean? I mean, my goodness, <laughs> she she, right, right. she seemed so kind and so wonderful and so dog-like, and then <laughs> as soon as things got you know got some nail out of her and you know got her on antibiotics and you know just treated her with intensive care, and holy smokes! As soon as she she started turning back into a beef cattle, beef cow, my goodness, <laughs> you had to take amazing precautions with this cow that you wouldn't take well, okay, in general I would I don't take with dairy cows. You know, dairy cows they have a different personality or a different tolerance for us, I guess. But um if you could if you could clear that up if you don't mind for listening on because some people think a cow is a cow is a cow and I don't think that's
0: true. Well, you know, uh, I get that question, those types of questions quite a bit, and I always go back to the dog analogy because people are aware you've got everything from Chihuahuas to Great Danes to Burmese Mountain Dogs and everything in between. So, and they're mm-hmm. all dogs. Right, <laughs> um, right. The right. problem, yeah, the problem. Well, not a problem. The the challenge with some of the cattle is um, some of the breeds have been so specifically bred, um, and their breeding controlled by us humans for more milk production, um, adding more muscle more quickly, um, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of traits that some of our dairy cows, for instance, we've we've so specifically selected for the trait of great milk production that they're actually terrible mothers. And when they breed the cow, uh, it's usually done with artificial insemination on the dairy cows, they breed the cow, as soon as she has the calf after a day they take the calf away from the mother and then they go to milk in her and that's where the milk in the store comes from and then the calves Mm -hmm. are raised by people and then they go into the production cycle the same way so these cows have like zero mothering instinct (laughs) they have the baby and they're like what is that (laughs) and the other traits that have showed up are some aggression with some of these cows Um, dairy bulls have the worst reputation. In the industry, um, more people are killed every year by dairy bulls than, um, and I should have looked the statistic up because it's pretty alarming, but dairy bulls kill a lot of people. They they just have a really bad temperament. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, we've done some, some specialized breeding to get the traits that we want, and then we've kind mm-hmm. of lost some of the other desirable traits. So, um yeah, and sometimes when these cattle are sick or they don't feel well, they seem to be pretty docile, and that's a pretty good indicator. <laughs> when they do start feeling better, is now they're not so it much of it. a pet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now you
1: made you yeah. made an important point here when you you um, suggested about where where our milk comes from, and that it's not a it's probably you know, the exact opposite of your free range beef cattle the milk-producing industry um, because it's very, very regulated and that most of these cows, these dairy cows, aren't free anything. They're, you know, enclosed in pens and that's brought in for milking twice a day and that, like you said, right. they need to stay pregnant or postpartum after having a baby in order to keep producing milk. Um, so right. the life of a dairy cow is kind of the opposite of your free-range cattle. Your free-range cattle are actually being cows. Um, And the dairy cows are not. (laughs) That's a very tame way to say it. But um, if somebody's interested, um, well, I hope everyone that's listening is interested, um, to find out where your food is actually coming from and what these creatures go through to get us our milk or get us our beef or get us our whatever it is that we buy at the grocery store. And that sometimes that's where people's thought process or people's... um, want, urge, need to find out more stops, but I, I, I really beg you to, in an effort to be holistic, in an effort to be open-minded, in an effort to be self-educated, in an effort to be a critical thinker, to please look more into these things. And one of the uh, movies that I've watched that was, um, without having any kind of political stand or anything like that, just really informational, to be perfectly frank, with Food, Inc., I watched that and, you know, I, I have I have my educational base, my experience base, and my externships and my, you know, those types of things, you know, and I've gone on hands-on to do things. And I think that that movie gave a really good, broad overview of how industries get food on our tables. So it's definitely not complete. It's definitely not, you know, so, but it's, Anyone has the urge just to sit down for a couple hours and just see, well, where the heck does that egg come from, or where the heck does that thing of milk come from, or where the heck did that the beef come from, or pig, or that um, that that kind of tells shows the shows the tale. Um, so that that's movies. You know, like I said, food ink. Um, so um, your your cattle that you've described, how much? Face, do they take? Do you guys figure it out per cow, um, an area, or um, overpopulation, underpopulation, uh, or is it based on how much forage is growing in your area, how many cattle you guys can keep, so they don't overgraze?
0: Well, it, or yes, it's based on um, on the quality of the forage and uh, the terrain. And here in Arizona, where we have our cattle. Um, You know, a lot of people ask, well, how many cows per acre can you run? Well, in Arizona, it's how many acres per cow. (laughs) Uh, (laughs)
1: That's exactly
0: right. (laughs) Yeah. Even the the pastures, and we call them pastures, and some people would go, you know, when you say pasture, you picture, uh, you know, Kentucky horse pastures where it's gently rolling (laughs) lots of green and and no obstructions, or you picture, you know, big Kansas pasture or maybe Texas um, Iowa, where things are a little more open and flat. Some of the pastures we have here in Arizona are the side of a mountain, and there's just nothing but scrub and brush and cactus and a, and a few native grasses that happen to be hardy enough to survive. And then there will be some areas that are more open and flat, some meadows we call them. And there's a big variety of, of uh, growing plants, vegetation. And so there's actually a chart uh, in each county in the state and that's what the state and the federal agencies use to um, determine how many cattle you can put on a section of land. A section okay. being okay. 640 acres. So there's some there's some guidelines there, and then within that, it just depends on the rain situation. Uh, again, here in Arizona, a few years back, we were in a huge drought situation, and a lot of us were cutting our numbers from, you know, the area would maybe support 100 cows, we were running maybe 60 because there just wasn't the uh-huh. feed. Now, summer of 2013, we got lots of rain, and so we've actually got <laughs> extra cows on some places to keep up with the growth because what happens this time of year is that as the feed dries up, then it becomes a fire hazard for yes, winter yes, time yes. and next spring before it rains again. So we like to keep, uh, you know, the vegetation at a certain level so we don't have fire hazards building up over the years.
1: Right, right. So and we, we, were, we were we we were, um, sadly, sadly reminded of the fire hazards here in Arizona in June. And I don't know yes. how closely the, um, um, the Granite Mountain fire got to your area with your cattle. Was that a threat to you guys uh, on the Granite Mountain side? Um, it was, um, yes. It was. One That's of our past years. Yeah.
0: Yeah, one of our pastures, the southern border, um, was is right up to the base of the north side of Granite Mountain. And when the fire started on the south side of the mountain, we thought, oh, we're safe. Well, <laughs> it was kind of an unprecedented fire and uh, just yeah. came flying up and over the mountain. So we did evacuate 25 cows and their calves and a bull um, with DC-10s flying overhead, dropping retardant nearby. And it was pretty surreal, but um, everybody yeah. was safe. We didn't lose any... There were no structures lost, no people, no homes, no animals, and um, that one ended on a good note.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then that, unfortunately for those those uh, listeners um, that know because it went global, um, the, the um, Darnell Fire started on the tail of the Granite Mountain Fire. And the Arnell Fire here in Arizona ended up on, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Kim, June 30th um, was the day that we lost 19... 19- of our hot shots um, because yep. of uh, extreme weather conditions, extreme wind conditions, and extreme fires, just like, like and Kim's talking about with Granite Mountain, going literally up and over this mountain in sh- such short period of time it took a lot of people by complete surprise. And I can't imagine <laughs> you guys loading up your horses and loading up your trailers and loading up to get out there to save these cows, to get them away from mm-hmm. this quick-moving fire, and then not even... I think that the Yarnell the fire started before Granite Mountain was over and that the resources had to be moved to Yarnell. And then, of course, right. it's a horrible tragedy on the 30th of June um, here in Yarnell. Um, but these guys, the, the folks that work to try and control these fires here in Arizona, they have their hands full with dangerous, dangerous work. So I want to I kind of put a call out to those guys and just thank you very much Absolutely. for all the work that they do. I mean... Goodness gracious. So um, if you wanted to tell our listeners one thing, no, not one thing, we know we're not, there's <laughs> never one <laughs> just thing. Just one thing? Um, just one. Just put it down to one. Um, when you try to educate people that are listening or inform, let's say inform rather than educate, that's kind of condescending, I think, that the, the difference between knowing and choosing a product on the shelf or a product that's being sold from um, a stock such as you and your husband raised, free range, uh-huh. living the life of a cow, and being tended to in much the same way that they used to be, if that's fair to say, back like you were describing where we used to just run them on the range and just push them in when they were done to go to auction or to go to um, um, the um, the lots and such. It, compared to the way that the industry has evolved and what the majority of the meat on the shelves contain. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to say to the people who are listening with regards to the difference between those two things, those two products?
0: Well, probably my my biggest um, advice would be to educate yourself. Um, don't just listen to the sound bites that you hear from humane organizations or you know some group that says. You know, this is bad and that's bad. Educate yourself, you know, what do these labels on these products mean? What does grass-fed mean? Uh, What does organic mean? Um, What does no hormones, no antibiotics mean? You know, what are these labels? And educate yourself. Most all of these labels are um, under the auspices of the United States Department of Agriculture, but they're done by a third-party certification company that I pay quite a bit of money to (laughs) to audit my (laughs) records and look at what at our processes, and we have um, SOPs, standard operating procedures that we follow, as do a lot of other producers, of what we can and can't do. And then right. educate yourself on, okay, if this animal, whether it's a cow or a chicken or whatever, is being fed antibiotics, um, and even if there are withdrawal times, what are, you know, what are the residual effects of that end product? You know, And, and again, people say, well, the government wouldn't let you, you know, sell it if it weren't safe. And then I say, well, <laughs> those of us that are old enough, you remember phalidomide. I mean, don't just take mm-hmm. someone's word for it. Educate yourself on how these animals are raised, what they're fed and why. There's pros and cons to all the different approaches. Um, there are parts of the country you couldn't grass-fed beef because there isn't enough grass and there are yeah. parts of the yeah. country like here, my chickens are in a yard because if I leave them free range, totally free range, I mean, they're in a big yard, but they're in a yard. If they were totally free range, I wouldn't have chickens, and the you coyotes would have, would have chicken lunch <laughs> every day. So there's, there's reasons <laughs> reasons that we have to do different things. But to educate yourself on um, you know what the animals being fed, how they're being raised, um, and my other... Um, creed is um, I'm looking how to, how to look at the whole animal to optimize yes. their yes. quality of life, whether it's a dog, yes. a chicken, a cow, a horse, whatever. And yes. what are they, how are they designed to live? Do they live solitary? Do they live in a herd? Uh, what do they eat when they're on their own without human intervention? And to the best of my ability, to give them that kind of lifestyle, because that's when they're going to be happiest.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. You know, that, just that, that like with, you. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, it's great like <laughs> with people. You
0: know, we want to be with other people. We want to have a good time, and you know, and so and how do so how do we punish our worst prisoners? We put them in solitary confinement. Oh. So we don't want to do that to animals. If we love our animals, we want to give them everything they need to, to maximize their their total health.
1: Well, that that's a, that's actually a very poignant statement there, Karen, because when we think about. I, I can't put words in your mouth, but um, the idea that we love our, our non-human friends and our family, like our dogs and those types of things, that doesn't stop when it comes to our chickens. It doesn't stop when it comes to our cattle, our fish, our whatever. Just because they're right. what people think of as non-traditional pets doesn't mean that we don't love them and doesn't mean that we are not um, the ultimately responsible for their well-being and that we're not... You know, we're not emotionally touched by them, and that those types of things. We want them to have a good life, regardless of mm-hmm. where that ends up. But that right. I think that's a very important point because some people honestly think that um, that, or they're trained or taught or somebody respects that it that the animals don't feel pain. Animals don't feel things or think the way we do, or they don't. You know, if I say that. My dog wants to do this, or my cow wants to do this, then I'm anthropomorphizing, you know, putting human emotions on a non-human creature. Right. And I think that that's a really unfortunate, antiquated way to think, because I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, can't speak for you, but you know, I think you said before we started the show that you find your chickens very entertaining. I, I think chickens are are fantastic. They, I find them very relaxing, and their their literal pecking order and their interaction with each other um, just it literally cracks me up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, they're great they're, entertainment.
1: <laughs> uh, they're fantastic. Now, with your, um, you told a story not too long ago about how you had made a step towards the long-term health of your chickens um, by changing their feed and such. Do you mind telling that story?
0: Sure, sure. Um, just a quick backstory. I've had chickens since, um, gosh, the '80s. In when I used to live in the Midwest, and kept in the same way uh, just for egg production, and um, just never had any trouble with them. And the last few years here, um, you know, they're, I'm feeding them the same thing. They get free-range scratch. They're, they have uh, green scraps and, you know, green weeds when I pull weeds for them. Um, they get a nice laying product from the feed store that's, you know, the, vitamins, minerals, everything, protein, all the components they need to have good eggs. And I had 20-some birds, and I was getting four, five, six eggs a day. And I said, this is ridiculous. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm managing them like I always manage them. And so do they need more light, or do they need – I'm like, what the heck? And um, through taking some classes and being educated on the genetically modified foods, I thought, I wonder if that's going on here. So I thought I'll do a little test, and I put them on all-organic chicken feed, which is a little bit hard to find and pretty expensive, but pretty expensive. That I managed to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> so they had organic scratch, which are just little grains that you toss out that they peck and scratch at, and then they had an organic laying crumble that actually had lavender in it for calming, oh, and it smelled wonderful. Nice. And, I mean, they ate like you can't even believe. And um, within about two weeks' time, I had 50% more eggs. And that yes. was the only thing I changed. Same bird, same management procedure. All I did was change their feed. So I thought, hmm, Oops. I think I'm onto something here. <laughs> yes. So
1: yes. then I've yes. been calling
0: so, I've been calling a lot of my feed suppliers, the big name feed companies and, and inquiring about, you know, just what's in your horse feed and your dog food when it says corn. Well it's just corn off the commodity market. So I've yes. been doing Oops. a lot of letter writing and emailing about you know, some of us don't want that stuff. Um, I, I don't want it in me. I don't want it in my animals, and, and trying to get them to go. So we're starting to see more organic um, animal food products.
1: Uh, that's so important. Out there. What you're doing
0: is is what you're doing is so
1: important. Not only picking first of all self-educating and knowing what yes. the heck something means, and that you know when you say corn, that's not enough. Is it genetically modified corn, or is it not genetically modified corn, which is hard to find? But the idea that Folks don't even know to begin with that there's even a, that the idea of genetic modification even exists is first. Right. But then the fact that actually spend your time, your effort, your resources to pick up the phone and say, Hey, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to feed myself this stuff. I'm certainly not going to feed my my animals this stuff. And the idea of bioaccumulation, which you alluded to earlier with the cattle, we're talking about the cattle, is so important as well. Now, mm-hmm. can you can you briefly describe? Uh, I can I'll run on for an hour that the, what a chicken was designed to do, what a chicken's constitution drives it to do naturally, like how chickens are supposed to live if we didn't mess with them.
0: Well, I'm not really a poultry expert, but
1: <laughs>
0: to the best of my ability, they, um, they seem to be uh, constantly in search of food. They're always scratching and pecking, scratching and That's pecking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they scratch with their feet and peck with their beaks. Um, they do, which most people don't realize. They do eat protein, um, like yeah. meat protein. Yeah. I've seen them yeah. eat mice, snakes. Um, you know, obviously grasshoppers and bugs of any sort. I've seen them catch flying insects.
1: Um, yeah, the mouth yep. is yep.
0: totally. I was just if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they are constantly in search of. Walking around, scratching and pecking and scratching and pecking. They love to roll in the dust. You know, if you've got a little yeah. dusty spot with fine dirt, um, mine are constantly rolling in the dirt and then laying on their side in the sun, and <laughs> they're
1: pretty yeah, comical. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. And the, the the thing that you just said about them, they'll eat anything. That
1: the the first time I was exposed to chickens, it, it was um up up north the uh, northeast, and we went to go. Um, get the eggs. And I had no idea what I was doing. And the hands were just like, you know, just peck, peck, pecking at me like, what are you doing in my house and you are not getting my egg? And they were very serious right. about it. So the guy, <laughs> the guy who was helping he says, okay, first of all, you were first from foremost high, not the front. And then he took an egg and he threw it in the corner of the, the barn. And they were free you know, to do their own thing. And these, every single one of these chickens, including the roosters, flew over like they were in a race to Eat upon this egg that was on the ground and had broken, and that was our opportunity to collect from all of their areas. I myself right. was completely mortified. I'm like, what are they doing? I'm like, why are they eating an egg? Isn't that like cannibalism? I completely freaked out. I was much, I was much younger and much more naive, but oh my gosh, that stuck <laughs> with me forever. And then seeing them out right. now, because I just, you know, I, I just love them. And you know, I think the egg is the perfect protein and it's just a so wonderful and the bioaccumulation from having good food, fresh air, no genetically modified anything going into our system, be it mine or my dogs or whoever, I just think it's right. perfect. So watching them now when they when they scratch and peck and they'll get a worm or they'll actually, like you say, get a rodent or a snake or something like you guys are fearless. <laughs> they're
0: just Oh yeah, things, they cluck at each other and then they all come running over. And if one of them gets the grasshopper and he runs around with it, and then they all chase him trying to get to yep. <laughs> get a piece of it, it's pretty comical. It's,
1: yeah, and that and the way the way that like you said, the way that industry has evolved—not evolved, I guess. Some um, um, what was the perfect word you use? Not evolved, but they was developed. Um, is that um, chickens are currently unless unless marked otherwise, right? they are kept in very small enclosures, cages, and such, and that they're just their for, for production um, in most cases, right. and that the feed that they get is questionable, you know, and that what kind of fillers or what kind of antibiotics, because they're enclosed, stressful, and um, crowding um, enclosures and such. But when right. we shop for eggs, um, I'm just kind of, I'm, well, more than kind of, I'm, I'm kind of a freak about label reading with regard to I want them to be free range, I want it to be GMO free, I want them to be, I want these chickens to be having a good life and producing eggs, just like you did with your chickens, they've always had a good life, but you change their feed into something that is closer to nature and not genetically modified, and you have instant, well not instant, but close to instant response from these chickens about their increase in everything, comfort production, decreased molting, those types of things. um, Right, right. I think that that is (laughs) shocking, shocking information. um, With regards to evidence, of just caring and self-educating, like you pointed out to our listening audience, that these things are so important. Do you have any um, uh, sources that you would um, recommend to our listening audience if they wanted to look into, you know, free-range cattle or free-range chickens, something that's more along that side? About you know how these guys are supposed to live or how they're, um, what's a the good li- what's a good life for free range cattle and chickens? Do you have any sources that you use other than like a, you know like what I used to be perfectly frank was like, chickens for dummies, you know <laughs> just like a starting you know starting place. Right, um, any, right. Any ideas on that?
0: Well, uh, the chickens for dummies and and the gardening for dummies and those kind of books are a good place to start um, if you're not with from an agrarian background. Um, The Internet, of course, is is a huge, sometimes blessing, sometimes a bane. Um, And, again, you have to consider your sources there because there's even some humane organizations under the guise of, oh, we want to make things better for the animals, but um, really, you kind of have to read between the lines and look at their mission statements and that sort of thing. But um, looking at some of the industries, uh, the beef, for instance, you can go um, the – the Beef Council, um, I'm going to say a lot of stuff in Arizona, but the Arizona Beef Board, there's lots of of information out there on how these animals are raised and why, and then the certifications, if you Google even, uh, you know, organic or all-natural or Uh um, grass-fed, all those different labels that you see, and just what does it mean, what does free-range mean, and like, for instance, with the dairy cattle, organic, they have to eat... Only organic feeds that have been the feed, you know, whether it's a corn or a grain or grass or hay, the feed has to have been grown organically for three years previous. So it's a huge documentation. um, Commitment.
1: It's a huge commitment. It's a huge Huge.
0: process, and it's a lot of work for somebody to do. You're not going to do it just because you think you're going to make a quick buck because it's a ton of work (laughs) and it costs you a lot to do. So generally people that are going through all those hoops to have their product labeled, um, they, they want to do it for the right reasons. But find out what all those labels mean and, um, you know, look at more than one source. Don't just look at one, one little website that right. says it, it means this. Um, the other thing would be in investigating the genetically modified stuff is the Institute for Responsible Technology lot of information there about, you know, just what are GMOs, what foods are affected, and it's, of course, the big ones, uh, corn, soybeans, canola, cottonseed, sugar beets, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and if, those you, if you're label alfalfa. reader, right, the alfalfa, Roundup Ready oh. alfalfa, yep. Yeah. If you're a label reader, boy, those ingredients are in everything. And, and those of us with dietary issues, I'm a label reader. I have um, lots of dietary issues, <laughs> Um, probably a topic for another show somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. But, um, show number two. Show number two. <laughs> right. <laughs> Human medicine. Uh, those products are in so many foods that we consume that we wouldn't even think about. Um, my right. favorite story on that is I, I have, uh, gluten issues. I'm not really celiac, but I have gluten intolerance issues. And I was eating a piece of red vine licorice one day at a function and made a joke. Yeah, oh, there's probably wheat in here. And somebody got the container, and it's a good thing because wheat is the second of four ingredients ingredient. in yeah. red wine liquor. Who would have thunk it? So you're
1: you like, are, the, are you kidding
0: me? Exactly. I thought, oh, here we go. So you need to know there's what's a, in
1: what's in your said, food, what's a, in
0: your animals' food.
1: Exactly. Go there's there's a sign that's out in, locally here, um, and I've seen it everywhere, you know, whether it's Connecticut or California or on the East Coast, no, where things will say all-natural grain-fed beef. Now, those, that actually makes me want... I've actually stopped taking a picture of that quite a few times for the class I teach because that is completely an oxymoron for me. But, yeah. you know, all-natural means that these cows in my brain, in my little pea brain, have been raised the way you're raising your cattle. That's the natural way to do it. That's a holistic way to do it. That's the way that cows are designed to be, to be in general. So, the all-natural grain-fed, the grain-fed piece of it. I'm like, okay, first of all, cows are they're they um, I don't know, they're grazivores. They're not grainivores. You know, I mean, like they they were born they were born to graze, not to be right. fed grain. You know, not to be fed hot food. And I know in the cat in the horse industry. We use, we use grain to heat them up. I mean, you know, that's what we do. I and mean, we, we sugar them up, we heat them up, we, you know, um, and then grains are used in cold nights. Grains are used if we need to fatten them up. In the horse industry, when I used to be in there, and, um, and not in a bad way, it just, that's just the way things are done in some, some facilities and such, but to see a sign of stuff that I'm supposed to eat and feed my family or feed my children, or, or in my case, feed my dogs, <laughs> because they get cooked for, uh, is all-natural grain-fed cattle. I just stare at it like, and people just don't know. I mean, like, people don't know. that Cows aren't granivores. They're not, grainivores. they are not they are just not. They're not even designed to process it like you stated. So um, your point about self-educating is um, powerful, to say the least. And um, we only have a couple more, 10 minutes here. I wanted to talk to our listeners very quickly. I want to give you guys more options to try to contact us and uh, special guests like Kim with her experience, her education, her outlook and things uh, are invaluable. So, once again, uh, the phone number here to contact us and ask questions. 347-215-6138 Also, for uh, listeners that are podcasting or listening on the um, um, the other, the blogtalkradio.com, you can email us at listeners at sylviaglobal.com but you can also post your comments in the comment section and the podcast on the Sylvia Global Facebook page. So feel free to use all of those avenues to contact the show to ask questions either during the show or after the show, between shows, and we will make sure to address your questions at the next um, broadcast. So once again, uh, listeners at SylviaGlobal.com or post comments in the um, comment section at the Sylvia Global Facebook page or call us at 347- Two one five six one three eight. Now, in our last couple fragile minutes here, Tim, can you tell us a little bit about your um, your horse industry, your your uh, training stables and such, and how you integrate your philosophy about being holistic and respecting the design and the nature of a creature? Because everything you've spoken about in the last hour.
0: Well, um, that's probably how I got into this whole thing was with the horses. Being a professional trainer, um, I've always looked at, you know, how can I improve uh, the horse's performance ultimately so the horse is more satisfied and the rider's more satisfied. And a lot of that um, goes into the horse's mental state. And, and, again, looking at how horses live in the wild, they live in little groups of six or eight or ten, and they have a de- definite dominance hierarchy, and, you know, the boss mare says, oh, we're going to go to water now, and we're going to go to food now, and we're going to do this, that, and the other, and the stallion just brings up the rear, and life is good. And so we humans come along, and we say, no, you need to live in a box stall all by yourself, and you're only going to go out in the pasture an hour a day, because I want you to be in the barn and be nice and clean and ready when I want to ride you. And then we wonder why the horse has all these obsessive de- uh, devices, we call them in the horse world, like cribbing where they grab the fence and suck wind and they chew wood and they stall walk and they weave and now we found they get ulcers and I'm thinking now what's going on here and so over the years I've tried to keep my animals in as natural environment as possible and there's there's some trade-offs I mean you can't have them living out in the pasture 24-7 and be going to the big national horse shows with them woolly and (laughs) fuzzy Um, But you try to minimize those stresses in their life as much as possible and do everything possible to have them be healthy and happy and relaxed. And that, I was finding, was eliminating a lot of my training problems. If the horse didn't have a stomach ache from the ulcers because I was taking care of him properly um, and he was more relaxed and happy because he was in the pasture with his buddies for a few hours a day, then his performance when I was riding him was optimized, and so that just made everybody's life easier. Um, and then I found the more healthy and happy they are, the fewer other uh, health problems I was having. They just are less apt to get sick, less apt to colic, uh, all those things that you know run up your vet bills and cause you more stress and cause them more stress, and it's just a, a snowball effect in a good way. Um, so my mantra with my horse training is to eliminate all the physical possibilities the horse could have for misbehaving and then go to training on them. <laughs> and a lot of times it's just as simple as diet change, environment change, schedule change, making sure their teeth are properly managed, their feet are properly managed, their equipment fits properly. And, again, that just goes back to educating you know, the owner-rider And trying to get them to see things through the horse's eyes a little more and it's just very rewarding when you can see the change in the horse and uh in their demeanor and their attitude and their uh their little obsessive behaviors just go away um one recent case a horse came to me and he just walked the fence continuously and i've just through working with veterinarians over the years and my undergraduate degree in biology, etc., and, and years of experience, um, I put this horse on some gut soothers and changed his routine where he's out in pasture, and within a couple of weeks he completely stopped walking the fence, stopped squeaking and grinding his teeth, stopped pacing, and just like a new animal. I mean, and just the relaxation in his demeanor, and he's obviously more happy just way more happy than he was before and that just makes my day (laughs) are you there